Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Hey, if you are a guest here with us at the well, we typically pick a book of the Bible and kind of cruise through it, and and then every once in a while, call timeout. Tonight's a timeout. We're gonna pull out of our series in 2 Timothy, and I wanna deal with something in Philippians chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, get a little bit of a head start. And I just wanna sort of draw attention to the elephant in the room that is on my neck here. I I made a mistake as a 50-year-old man, and I went to the dermatologist I do not recommend that, by the way, no, no disrespect if you're in that industry, but they're like, hey, while you're here, we wanna do this and that and that. Next thing you know, I had like Band-Aids everywhere and whatnot, so unless you thought like, hey, Brad's got a unique fashion thing going with the Band-Aid, it's, re- it's, really, not, it's really not just a fashion accessory, but anyway, there it is, so you're welcome. Um, as you're turning to Philippians 2, let me just sort of set this up a little bit. Here at the well, we have what we call foundational practices which is basically our attempt to say, what what does the Christian life look like? How do we synthesize what the Bible teaches and how we walk with Jesus? All of it builds off of the premise of embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Embracing the gospel at a point in time where Christ becomes Lord of your life, we recognize the depth of our sin, we confess that to the Lord, We, we invite him to be Lord of our life, so our sin goes to him, his righteousness goes to us. It's this beautiful exchange theologically, it's called imputation, wonderful, wonderful gift of God that he offers us freely. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just embrace the gospel like back in young life when we were in middle school. We continually embrace the gospel even today. Why? Because we still need the work of Christ. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. And what you're going to find as you walk with Jesus is you're going to do well, and then all of a sudden something happens. The flesh kicks in. You start doing things you used to do, or even in a moment something comes out. You're like, whoa, what was that? Well, that's the flesh that's still present in you. Oh yeah, we still need the gospel. Well, as we embrace the gospel, God begins to energize different characteristics in our life that are much like Jesus, one of them being serving faithfully. And serving faithfully is one of those foundational practices driven by the work of the gospel and what we wanna talk about here tonight. And you might ask the question, okay, well, why, why is serving faithfully um, a characteristic of a follower of Jesus? Because that's just it. We're following Jesus, which means we're trying to live the way he lived. We're trying to do what he did. The very name Christian means Christ-like one. Assumption being, whatever we see Christ doing, um, by his spirit that's working in us, we're invited to do the same. And even the good life that jo- uh, Jesus talks about in John 10.10, 10, the good life or life abundant that the Bible mentions is actually best enjoyed when we live in step with how Jesus lived. Now, thankfully, our God is a revealing God. So your God is not, the God of the Bible at least, is, is not a God that is distant or hiding He's revealed himself in his creation, in the works that he has done through, throughout the centuries. He's revealed himself in his scripture, but ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't serve a God that's just a religious concept. We serve a God who took on flesh. 
And, and the beauty of following Jesus is we're not simply following a religious teacher, we're following God incarnate. So what we know uh, about our Christ is that he is preexistent. So this Jesus whom we serve uh, did not come into being in the manger scene, as beautiful as our nativity scenes are in the Christmas season. Uh, but the Bible says that he's preexistent. In fact, in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus makes a statement that is chocked full of theological implications, but most of the time we miss it. It simply says this, uh, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's a massive statement. By the way, it's John 17. That's Jesus's high priestly prayer hours before he goes to the cross. Jesus just drops that, like, glorify me with a similar glory that I had before Genesis 1. That, that's insane. That, that's our preexistent Christ. And yet, this preexistent Jesus clothed himself in humanity. It's a beautiful picture of the love of God that in the beginning, John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word. When John uses the concept word, he's talking about the, the, the full essence of all that is God. In the beginning was the word, then the word was with God, and the word was God. Now everything came into being through him, et cetera, et cetera, and then it says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this, this God has incarnated. That, that's the, the backdrop, or at least some of the theological implications of Philippians chapter two. One of the most important passages uh, in our scriptures as it relates to the nature of Christ. It's commonly called the kenosis, because there's a word that he's gonna use here. Um, the word is emptied, you'll see it in verse seven. Um, he emptied himself. It's the word kineo or kenosis, and it's the idea of to make empty or to make void. And so what Paul is doing for the church in Philippi is helping them understand the nature of Christ because as you understand Christ, you understand what we're called to be. And when you see what Christ does on our behalf in Philippians 2, you see the invitation for us to be like him in this kenosis. It starts in verse 1. It says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. We'll stop there just for a moment. It says if, in, at least in my translation, multiple times, if there's this, if there's that, if there's that. One of the interesting things, and we're gonna geek out just a little bit in this text, in the language, just so we understand the implications of it. Uh, if can sound at least to us like, ooh, nail biter, I hope that's the case. Like if, but if not. Maybe, maybe not kind of thing. But this is what's called a first class condition, which means in the language itself, it assumes a positive response. It assumes it is true. So it's, it's better translated sense. So sense there is encouragement in Christ. Sense there is consolation of love. Sense there is fellowship in the spirit. And sense there is affection and compassion. Since these things are already present, because you are in Christ, verse two, make my joy complete. The nature of being in Christ is that something happens in our life. We are not who we used to be. It does not suggest that we don't sometimes live like we used to live. It means we are not at a fundamental level who we used to be. Something happened. We are different. That's the gospel. The gospel is an event. It's not a philosophy. 
When you trust in Jesus Christ at the very fabric of who we are, we were enemies, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, but God, something happened, and we're reconciled to God. So those things, to those of us who are in Christ, are present. That's part of the reality of the gospel. And therefore, he says in verse two, to make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the same spirit, and intent on one purpose. He's gonna invite us into something here as followers of Jesus that is countercultural. To invite us into something that is unnatural, that is counter to our very nature. We have a nature, uh, our nature apart from Christ is all flesh all the time. In Christ, thanks be to God, we're freed from the mastery of the old self, but the flesh still rears its ugly head. I like to say new life in Christ, yes, but doggone it, old habits are hard to break. And so there, there is this, there's this nature that's in us. And human nature is highly individualistic. We very much care about ourselves. We very much turn inward. Um, me, myself, and I is a thing according to nature. It comes very natural. Uh, we become very protective of ourself. There's a guy named Carl Truman who wrote two books, one that I tried to read and I couldn't, so I read the other one. Uh, the one I tried to read but I couldn't was one called The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self. It was 400 pages and uh, is brilliant, and as I started to work through it, I'm like, this guy thinks at another level. But thankfully, uh, his publishers realized that as well. And so they said, look, most people are not gonna read a 400-page tome on the rise and fall of the modern self. So we wrote a follow-up, which is the same content, but condensed and a little bit more accessible, and it's called A Strange New World. I read that one, and it is fantastic. And what he does is he traces the thinkers that have come in sort of centuries past and what they taught and what it led to and then what they taught and what it led to and what, it ta what they taught and what it led to. And he coins a phrase called expressive individualism that is in some ways putting words to the flesh that comes out to protect ourself, that cares about ourself, that's worried about ourself. And here's what he says. He says the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity of those inner feelings as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. Simply put, what Truman suggests is for the modern self, the highest expression of truth is finding out who you think you are and then living that externally. And so whatever you think, you can put that on display. Whatever you believe, you can put that out there. Your thoughts, your opinions, your feelings, your needs, your preferences, your truth. Put them out there. And the world, if they want to affirm you as an individual, will celebrate the expression of yourself. Another scholar uh, said this about expressive individualism. He said it holds that each person has a unique core of feelings and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. So what expressive individualism says is not only find out your inner whatever and then put it on display, uh, but everybody else uh, should see that and if individuality is going to be expressed, then every one of us should be able to do that without question. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to smell the narcissism from a mile away. 
That is one of the most narcissistic things I have ever heard, that the true meaning in life comes from you looking in the mirror, finding out what you think about everything and you feel about everything and, and your truth about everything and then putting that on display and then expecting everybody to go, oh, okay, that's your truth, amen, you live your truth. And yet that's exactly where we're at. You can go into a college campus today, you can have a debate, you can be as right as the day is long and they'll go, well, that's your truth. So we have completely jettisoned any objective truth and it's becoming individual. Now, the interesting thing about that is that is not the way we were created by God to be. That is not the example of Christ to find your individuality and put it on display and that's the most important thing is you. Um, And that's not the instruction of the scriptures. Look at verse three. It says, do nothing from selfishness some Bibles say selfish ambition, or empty uh, conceit, some of your Bibles might say vain pride, but instead of, of doing things out of selfishness, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, your own thoughts, your own opinions, feelings, needs, preferences, etc but instead uh, also for the interests of others. Do you see how the Bible is countercultural? So a college campus is telling our young people today to find out their truth, their experience, their beliefs, their values, and to put it on display. The Bible's saying the exact opposite. The Bible's saying the most important thing in life, contrary to popular belief, is not you. The most important person in this world is not you. In fact, the Bible's gonna say, no, actually you should treat others, not as equal to yourself, as more important than yourselves. The word to um, look out for that's used in verse four of looking out for your own personal interest means, and this is great, to exert effort to continually acquire information regarding the matter with ongoing concern. It's a very unique word. Now if you think about narcissism, ancient navel gazing if you will, of just being obsessed with yourself. Uh, If that's what that word means, then it's the idea of exerting great effort and continually inquiring information about yourself in an ongoing manner with great concern. Boy, if that's the, the chief end of life, that is a very shallow way to live. Now, thanks be to God that the Bible teaches us not only another way, but gives us an example that is so beautiful in Christ. Expressive individualism, which is so common in our cultural t- culture today, is turning inward to ourself, to engage ourself, to seek our needs, um, our desires, our obsessions, our passions. But if you look at verse four, what really we're being invited into is to take the same interest and effort that a narcissist puts on themselves and to take it to others to continually look for the interests of others with great concern, constantly acquiring information about them, their needs, their desires, their passions, what they want, what they need, etc. To be curious about others, gaining information about others, taking interest with others, that is unnatural. That's why you need the gospel. Because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all ridiculous narcissists. Now, we may never acknowledge that, and we, we're, more, we're more sophisticated with it, and we know how to hide it, but at the end of the day, we get really good at taking care of ourselves, but we're being invited into something different 
And that's why we need Christ. Look at verse five. It says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The, the idea of attitude, by the way, in verse five, have this attitude in yourself, it, it's not necessarily a mood, uh, it's a mindset. It's, it's the idea of a thoughtful planning. Have, have this structure in your mind to, to act out what you see now in Christ. Have this attitude in yourself. And it says in verse six that he existed in the form of God. That is as clear a, a statement of deity of Christ that you're gonna find in Paul's literature. So he existed in the form of God, that in his pre-incarnate state, Christ was fully God, and he, he, he's gonna clothe himself here in just a moment, Paul says, in humanity. He existed in the form of God, the essence, the being, the nature of God. But he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if you understand pre-existence, then the incarnation, God bless you, becomes fascinating. Because if you understand pre-existence, the incarnation is a pre-existent God who chooses to leave the glory of heaven, leave the presence of God, leave a sinless eternity with the Father and to clothe himself in humanity. To, to understand a pre-existing Christ means that the manger is God incarnating through a pregnant teenage girl in the most unsanitized location you could ever imagine. Ladies, I want you to just envision, you go to a stable of horses, you, you, you give birth to a child in the manure of the stable. That's where Jesus was born. This is one of the most condescending, in the best of ways, humiliating moves ever in the history of man. That God would say, you know what, I'm, I'm, not, gonna, I'm not gonna consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, fought for, grasped striven to keep. Instead, I'm gonna let it go because those people down there need me. And because those people need me, I let go glory and I incarnate full deity clothed now in humanity. And notice, it says that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Uh, it's a complete removal. It's a, an elimination of status, rank, or privilege he didn't hold on to it, he emptied himself. He was not a grasper. Have you ever met a grasper? Just a person who wants the prestige, they want the power, they want the corner office, they want the nameplate on their door, they want the best parking spot and they will cut you off to get it. They, they want what they want and they will fight to get it. And Jesus wasn't a grasper. In fact, he, he emptied himself. Now, to be clear, he didn't empty himself of divinity. There's been a lot of debate throughout the years of church history. What did this passage entail? What did he leave? He emptied himself of the benefits of the location and the proximity to the Father. He emptied himself from perfect glory, and he placed himself in the fallenness of this world. And he, put, he took upon himself the limitations of an earthly existence, made like, like us in all things yet found without sin. And in fact, if you notice, he took now the form of a bondservant. Do any of your Bibles have a different word than bondservant, by the way? Slave. Slave. It's the word doulos. 
And it means slave, but it's something a little different. There's a slave and then there's a bondservant. The difference is a slave who earned or bought their freedom in the Roman culture could choose by the benevolence of the master they served to stay in their employ. And if so, they would take that slave to the doorpost of the home. They would pierce their ear with like an ice pick or an awl. And in so doing, mark that that person by the piercing is now not a slave, but a bondservant. And a bondservant is a willing slave of a benevolent master. Jesus took upon himself the form of a willing slave of a benevolent master. And he submitted himself to the Father. John 6 says this. It says, uh, Jesus speaking, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus empties himself, doesn't grasp glory, incarnates and now says, I do what the Father sent me to do, period. That is it. I just do what the Father says. Verse eight. But he's found now in the appearance as man. It's a different word. It's not the word morph that we saw in terms of likeness in the previous times. This is the word schema that we get the word schematic from. It means a drawing or a frame. It's an outward appearance. So when we say that full deity clothed himself in humanity, we get it from this passage. Theologians for centuries have gotten that concept of God clothed in humanity from this text and the language is specific. He's found in the appearance of man and he humbles himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So full deity, clothed in humanity, he humbles himself. Now that's counterintuitive. Who humbles himself? The interesting thing about the Christian life is the end is humility. There's just two ways to get there. I don't know how your parents treated you when you were a kid, but when I did something foolish, my dad said, look, son, there's two ways you can do this. You can do this the easy way, or you can do this the hard way. For some reason, I chose the wrench every time. I chose the hard way. But there is an easy way. But the end goal of the Christian life is humility. And you can be humbled or you can humble yourself. Peter learned this, by the way, in 1 Peter 5. Peter says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you, you cannot seek the interests of others if you are consumed with yourself. So humility is, is part of this process. Now you might say, what does the kenosis of Christ, full God, or full deity rather, clothed in humanity, what does that have to do with serving faithfully? Well, the point would be this, Jesus is our example. And as we look at the life of Jesus in this text for us, what we find is a couple of things. One, Jesus was not a grasper. He was not a grasper, he opened up his hand from his position in glory, he was not a grasper. Two, he willingly placed himself under the Father's authority not coming to do his will, but the will of him who sent him. Three, he looked out for the interests of others. Four, he willingly chose to be near those in need, right? And then fifth and final, he modeled a life of service. So what I'm gonna do is we sort of bring this message towards the close is I'm gonna walk through those things and just ask the question, okay, if that's what he did and that's what we should do, how are we doing? So let's start with the first, Jesus was not a grasper, okay? The question I would just have for you is, are are you a grasper? There's a little bit of grasper in all of us because the flesh is there, okay? We want what we want. We want it the way we want it. And boy, once we got it, you can take it out of my cold, dead hand because we we tend to be graspers. We We like our house the way we have it and we like our 
vehicle the way we have it and we like our food the way we like it and if the steak's not cooked the way I like it, I'm sending it back because I said medium, almost medium rare but not quite, right? And, and, and I wanted two and a half pumps of my extra hot soy latte, not too, right? And I'm, I'm poking a little bit but, but, I, but I hope in some ways you're thinking about what's real in your life because I'm being a little bit, you know, a little speaking hyperbolically but that's kind of a thing, isn't it? So are you a grasper? Boy, there are things I like to grasp. I got in my wife's car this morning. She's a little bit more creative. I'm a little bit more like this. She's got like 40 cables. Just got her a new phone because her other one broke. And so she plugs her phone in. It's a brand new phone. I go, babe, do you, do you need to plug your phone in? It's charged all night. It's charged. She goes, yeah, I like to charge it. And I go, yeah, but the cables. She goes, it's my car but it's driving me crazy, right? So, so I'm a grasper, I want order. Are, are you like that? And, and if so, is it worth having a conversation about what confession and repentance looks like? When we find those things in our life to go, God, I, why? Why am I so selfish? Why do I need it the way I want it? Why can't I just show preference to one another in honor? Why can't I just consider others as more important than myself? Why am I always imposing my will in situations like that, and, and if that's you, can I just encourage you, Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals a transgression will not prosper, but he or she who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Can I just encourage you, if you're a bit of a grasper, to just open your heart to God and say, God, search me and know my heart. If there's anything there that's not of you, I wanna repent of that. And, and we tend to grasp things and think it's not that big a deal and yet that grasping is just revealing flesh that's you trying to hold on. Second, we mentioned that um, Jesus willingly placed himself under the Father's authority. Can I just ask you, how, how are you doing with that? Most of us, by the way, when we mention the word submit to authority, the hair stands up on the back of our necks and we're like, what do you mean by that? Well, what, what I mean by that is Galatians 2.20 says that you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you. How are you doing with that? Are you still living or is it Christ in you? And, and you can tell the difference, by the way. When, when you try to take the steering wheel of your own life, it's usually an airbag in the face. But when we can submit and just say, God, you're the one who's in control of my life, I wanna submit to you. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be handed to you as well. And yet, sometimes you're like, yeah, 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 but I got this. This one's me. You can have these, but I've got this. And I would just encourage you. Second Corinthians five says, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jim Elliott, the great missionary, put it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And if you're having a hard time submitting to the Father's authority, I want to just encourage you to let go. It will be the most wonderfully terrifying thing you've ever done because he is good, he is aware, and he is present and he cares about it more than you do. And he cares enough about it that he might pry your hands open that you might finally learn to trust him. Third, Jesus looked out uh, for, the, for the interest, rather, of others. Now that's an interesting one. Um, 
Jesus said in, in Matthew 20, uh, he, he said the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord their, their position of leadership over them. And uh, their great men exercise authority, he said, over them. Uh, but it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great should be a servant. Whoever wishes to be first should be a slave. Uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting to me when we talk about taking interest uh, in the life of others or taking interest just in others. Um, boy, it's really hard to do because, again, it's, it's upside-down thinking. We're, we're used to like, no, 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 I work hard so that I win. And it's about winning. This life is about winning. I'm winning, which means I'm better than them. And I just go, I don't, I don't think the kingdom of God is a competition with them. I think there are times to, to consider others' interests as more important than yourself. And if that's convicting for you, can I just encourage you, open your heart to God and just say, oh God, I need you. I do need the gospel. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's just an acknowledgement that the flesh is still present and that at our core without Christ, we're still grasping. All right. Fourth, Jesus was uh, willing to uh, be near those who were in need. The incarnation has fascinated me for years. Just this idea of, of a holy God who, who incarnates in sinful, well, not sinful flesh, but incarnates in flesh among sinful people uh, and, and lives among us. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt in John 14 is the word tabernacled. He like tabernacled among us. He like pitched a tent among us. He, he lived uh, among us. It's fascinating. And yet living among us over and over and over and over and over in the Gospels, you see Jesus seeing the depravity of the world moved with compassion. That word compassion that you see, in fact, it's used in like Matthew 9. Jesus, it says, seeing the people in verse 36, felt compassion for them because they were distressed like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, he went ashore and there was a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed the sick. He sees a leopard, a leper, not the cat, a leper, in Mark 1, and he's moved with compassion, and he stretches out his hand, and he touches the man. The word is splonknizomai, who cares, but it's fun to say, but here's what it means. Compassion means to be moved in the bowels to action. So you're so moved, you're like, ah, I'm wrecked by what I'm seeing. I cannot not act. I, I can't just do nothing. I'm moved with compassion. How are you with compassion? There's so many of us go, that's not my problem. Or what did they do to get themselves in that situation? Or whatever. And yet, Jesus was always moved with compassion. He tells the great commandment in Luke's gospel, love God and love your neighbor. Right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Great, great passage. Okay. And there's a guy who's listening who probably would have done well in our religious culture here also because he goes, yeah, 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 but who's my neighbor? Like wants to clarify a little bit. So Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you've read the story of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is just like, look, it really doesn't matter who the person is. If somebody's in need, get your wallet out there and help the person. Be a part of the solution. See the need, meet the need. But so many people, in fact, the priest and the Levite go the other way. They're like not even looking at the guy. And Jesus is telling the story as a condemning thing to the religious who in their own religious way say, well, that's not my problem. Well, then whose problem is it? If you're the hands and feet of the gospel and Jesus left glory to incarnate here, how much more should we incarnate where the problems actually are? 
And then finally, Jesus modeled a life of service, a life of service. He said in the passage I read previous, he didn't come to be served but to serve. And I'm just mindful of the the book of James who says, look, you, you have faith? Okay, well, I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. He goes as far as to say this too. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing or without daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Faith without deeds is useless or dead. In fact, he asks the question, can, can, a, can a deedless faith save you? What he's really saying is, is a deedless faith authentic faith? Because authentic faith, we're filled with the heart of Christ. How can we not get involved? How can I not demonstrate my faith by my deeds? Jesus is gonna say in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way they'll see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus modeled a life of service. And the only way that we follow in his footsteps is if we also model a life of service. Now, the motivation for this call to serve is not a stick. I hope you don't feel beaten up. It's not meant to beat you up. If you're convicted, praise God, deal with the Lord on that. The motivation is the good life that comes when you live like Jesus lived. And the, and the irony is that the good life that Jesus invites us into is found when you give it away. If, the, if you wish to find your life, you lose it, but if you lose your life for his sake, you find it. And there's so many Christians, maybe you're here tonight, that have trusted Jesus, you've, you've got faith, and, and you just don't, you don't really do anything with it. And I'm saying, oh, there's so much more God has for you because the joy comes in the serving. And if we as a faith community could, could express that together, I think we'd, we'd experience his pleasure together as we gave our lives away. Now, you say, man, I, I thought we were in 2 Timothy. How do we end up here? Well, uh, next week is one of the most important weeks in the entire calendar year at the Well Community Church. It's called Serve Fresno. And next week, we uh, relocate all of our gatherings, including this one, and we go serve in our city. And we have hundreds and hundreds of opportunities for you to go serve. There will be thousands of people all over our city serving. And uh, the information's all on our website, but we, we want you to know not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're gonna go do Serve Fresno. We're gonna go serve like we've done for like 18 previous years. But I want you to know why. Why we're serving is because we're Christians. Why we're serving is because we follow Jesus. And he served. And so we're gonna go do what Jesus did. Now some of you are like, I've never done that before. Welcome to the well. We'll see you at Serve Fresno next week. And we'll go paint some walls and do some graffiti abatement. And we'll clean up some stuff in alleys. And we'll go partner with people in great communities in our city that are underserved. And we'll go show them the love of Christ by just being present and play with kids. We'll pull some weeds. We'll cut some trees back. We'll have a ball. We'll fix things and clean things and encourage people and see people whom God loves and we will be Christ while we're serving. And so I hope that uh, you will consider that. But in the meantime, I want you to wrestle with the why.
and just be willing to open to God and see what God might have for you. I walked through a number of things that Jesus did. And uh, one of the beauties of uh, following Jesus is sometimes it stings a little bit when you hear his word. And I'm convicted. By the way, just keep in mind, when we're talking to you, I'm, I'm preaching to myself because my flesh is present and I am a grasper for things other than just the cords in my wife's car that should really get cleaned up, by the way. And, and, and so I'm wrestling with my own flesh, going, okay, Lord, what am I holding on to? And I want to spend some time here over the next several days with the Lord, just going, okay, Lord, I taught this message. What, what do you want to do in me? Because I want to make sure the text is transforming me. Too. I want to invite you into that as well. And just as a highlight of some of the things that are going down in our city that we want to share with you. And by the way, one of the, in, one of the beautiful things about Sir Fresno is you see different things that you may not have seen before. And you just go, you know what, that, that actually wasn't that hard. I actually kind of liked it. I'd like to do that again. And we say yes. And we hope that organizations and neighborhoods all over our city are just inundated with people from the well who just want to go be Christ. And so we want to show you an example of what that might look like in a very practical and tangible way here in our city. Let's take a look. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.